Please take your Bibles this evening, if you would, and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4. We come to the second to last topic within this mini-series on loving one another, intended to answer the question of how, in connection to 1 John's command, that we would love the brethren. So important is this idea, in fact, of 1 John, that John considers a love for the brethren the functional litmus test, a functional litmus test at least, for whether or not we are walking in the Spirit. He says it's inconsistent for us to say that we are walking in the Spirit. Remember, 1 John is not about whether you're saved or unsaved, but it is about this idea of whether you're abiding in Him. It is inconsistent for us to say that we abide in Christ, that we're walking in the Spirit, that we're walking in the light, if we hate our brother, if we are not loving our brethren. And so the question comes up, what does that look like? What does it mean? Now, to this point, we've considered two of the four principles of loving the brethren. The principle of divine example, two weeks ago, where we went to Romans chapter 12 to contemplate the design of God in the church, by which we, through determined efforts to be a living sacrifice and for the Lord's sake, set ourselves aside and do what is best one for another. Self-sacrifice was the theme of that idea there in Romans chapter 12. It was actually even the essence of, of verse 1. Then last time we considered the principle of need. The scriptures speaking in no uncertain terms of the divine expectation that we would meet one another's physical needs in the body. And today we come to the principle of truth. And we alluded to this a couple weeks ago in Romans chapter 12 that the idea of showing preference one to another, honoring one another, deferring to one another, setting ourselves aside one for another, is not to be taken as some sort of perverse toleration, where in order to promote tranquility in our midst, in order to have unity and peace among another, we achieve this unity or we achieve this peace by making allowance for sin. That is not the idea that's being spoken of there. And that's what we're going to talk about this evening. Rather, we seek peace and unity in Christ. We seek peace and unity in righteousness, the principle of truth. And the foundation foundational passage, if you will. I took you to Romans 12 to talk about that foundational passage as it relates to unity and service. Uh, the foundational passage for this idea, I believe, is in Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to walk, as I did in Romans chapter 12, through Ephesians 4. Next week we'll be walking through an entire chapter of Scripture as well as we seek to understand these concepts. So we step into Ephesians chapter 4 and recall, uh, as I've mentioned many times before, how Ephesians is structured. Ephesians is structured uh, very similar to many of Paul's books, with the first half of the book being doctrinal and uh, philosophical in a sense in in essence. So the first three chapters of Ephesians are doctrine, giving this the doctrinal foundation for the truths that Paul is teaching. And then after that, in, in chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians, uh, in Colossians, it's broken into 1 and 2 is doctrinal, and then 3 and 4 
uh, in that second half of the book, we see application. This is where Paul says, well, what should you do with all the stuff that I just taught you about Jesus? What should you do with all the stuff that I just taught you about your relationship to Jesus? You should do this with it. And Ephesians chapter 4 begins the application section of the book. What should you do with the things that Paul has just written about as it relates to us being in Christ, holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, uh, that we at one time were alienated from God through our wicked works, but now we've been reconciled to him. If all of that is true, what does it mean? And that's what we pick up in here in Ephesians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read to you the first 10 verses, then we'll talk about a few things. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ." I'm going to, I, I know I skipped a little bit there, but that's because I doubled up on verse 8. So verse 8 is still here. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. So Ephesians 4 opens with a call unto those who are reading, believers in the church of Ephesus, to walk worthy of the Lord. This feels like an impossible task. How do I walk worthy of the true and living God? And Paul elaborates on this in verses 2 and 3, that this looks like forbearing one another in love with all lowliness and meekness, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring with all of our might to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Love and unity. That's actually what we've been talking about quite a bit for the last couple of weeks, right? Loving one another, peace, and unity one with another. And the reason why is because a body out of unity is a body that is functionally useless. If there's one body, one spirit, one blessed hope, one God and Father of us all, and that, that's what the Bible says, so that, that, that's, what, that's what it is, and, though each, and, and then to each of us there are given gifts, these gifts, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 tells us, are not in order that we might just do what we do, but the gifts are there so that we can profit with all, so that the body could be profited. You have been given gifts by God so that you can connect yourself to a body of people that have been given different gifts, and that between your gifts and my gifts, we can be a functional body that is able to be effective for the cause of Christ. The gifts that you are given exist to profit the body as a whole, not simply a part of the body. And to this end, unity in the body is not just preferred. Unity is essential. So that the need to be unified in the church really ought to override 
any personal priority that I might have for myself in the church. I was talking to someone just recently and I was telling them about a little bit about our philosophy uh, of ministry and, and, and the philosophy of ministry of some churches as it relates to things such as church membership and such. And, and one of the things that we were talking about is the fact that as a church, it's important for us as Christians to understand that when you come to a church, the church is not there, and this is a common idea in the age, that the church is there to meet my needs. Right? And you come to a church for what I need from the church, for what I can get out of the church. And it's wonderful. I hope that the church meets your needs. But the functional reason for you to be here is for you to meet the needs in the church. It is for you to be a part of something bigger. It is for you to fill a gap that the church needs or to strengthen a place where the church is there so that you might serve in the body. And so we have this idea. The need to be unified in the church ought to override any personal priority in my life as it relates to that church. And we say this with great care because this does not mean unity at any cost. We might rather say unity at any personal cost. We could make an argument for our language to be that dramatic. We'll talk about that next time we're together with the Weaker Brethren Principle. But we can't say unity at any cost because unity in the church is not designed to simply exist for unity's sake. If we just wanted unity for the sake of unity, then we could say unity at any cost. But unity for the sake of unity is not the kind of unity that God wants. Unity is intended to be about something, more specifically about or around someone. We are called as the church, the body of Christ. And we are called the body of Christ because we are supposed to be the body of which Jesus Christ is our head. That is a metaphorical idea. Jesus is our head in that he is our authority. But it's also kind of a, within the picture, within the, the analogy, it is a physical idea. That if we're talking about a body, we are the body of Christ and Jesus is the head. Jesus has given us gifts, purchased with his blood, proclaimed his victorious declarations to those in the lower parts of the earth, realized through his church, as Ephesians 4 says. And if we carry forward this body analogy, we acknowledge that while each of my body parts serves a distinct purpose, those body parts, if those body parts are working properly, without any dysfunction or disease, then they work at the behest of my brain. My brain tells my body what to do, and my body does it. My brain tells my hand to do something, and my hand does it. My brain tells my feet to do something, and my feet do it. My body is in fact unified, but it's not just unified, it's unified around my head. My brain, what my brain is telling my body to do. When it once my body parts fall out of sync with my brain, my body is now dysfunctional. Even if my hands and my feet are in sync with each other, if, they aren't, if they're refusing to do what the brain tells them to do, while they may be unified with each other, they are yet useless to the body as a whole because they're not listening to the head. And the same is true in the church. 
Unity is not just unity. It's not about unity. Unity for the sake of unity does not do the body any good unless only unity under our head, who is Christ, is unity which actually accomplishes the purpose unto which the church is designed. And that's namely that we serve the body together. We serve the head together. Excuse me. And that means that this law of unity and love, this idea that we seek unto loving one another in unity, verses 2 and 3, with lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, this, this patience, this, this, this uh, lowliness, this humility, this love, this unity in the bond of peace, it is all directed unto an end, and that end is unity and love and peace in Christ, Christ's way, unto Christ's ends. Which means that this law of unity and love is actually subject to the law of truth. And that's what we see as we continue. Continuing here in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning or continuing in verse 11, the Bible says, And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ." till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ." from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So in the context of the gifts that are given to the church, Paul speaks specifically of four gifts unto this end that they might be unified in the right way, that they might have this love in the right way. He speaks of apostles, he speaks of prophets, he speaks of evangelists, and then he speaks of the pastor and teacher. Now, some will break that last, that last um, um, office there into two. They'll say there are pastors and there are Teachers, However, the original languages has enough distinction between the way it, it writes the first four and the way it writes that last one, that fifth one, to persuade me that pastor-teacher is intended to be a single office. You can even see that in our King James Bibles, um, that if we look at how the King James Bible translates it in verse 11, it says, and he gave some apostles, semicolon, and some prophets, semicolon, and some evangelists, semicolon, and some pastors and teachers, semicolon. And so the King James translation also reflects this idea that pastor and teacher is one office there. And, and I, I think that in the Greek it's pretty clear and it, uh, it, it is so, um, at least as the text reflects it. Now, early in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says specifically there, he, he describes the church as a building in Ephesians chapter 2, and he says that that building was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. So when Paul is teaching in Ephesians, he likens the church to a building that is built upon a foundation. And he says that foundation is the apostles and prophets. He says Jesus is the cornerstone by which the apostles and prophets have been measured. And as that foundation is laid, then the building is built upon that 
that foundation. So we recognize that if we keep Paul's statement here of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers in context, Paul has already expressed that the apostles and prophets are not a part of the building themselves. They are a part of the foundation to the building. It is poured once. It is poured perfectly. And then things are built on top of it, perhaps over many years. But the foundation is laid at the beginning. And then the whole of the building rests upon that foundation. So then the other two gifts that are mentioned as given to the church are the evangelist and then the pastor teacher. The evangelist being the man that is burdened, burdened and gifted with sharing the gospel and the pastor teacher being the man that is burdened and gifted with teaching and counseling to guide those into the truths of Jesus Christ. We might say unto discipleship. So you have those that are burdened and gifted to share the gospel and to win folks to Christ and then you have those that are burdened and gifted to then disciple those who have been won to Christ in the teachings of the Lord. And it all functions unto this twofold end. First, he says to perfect the saints for the work of the ministry. The gifts that God has given to the church through these apostles, prophets, uh, evangelists, and pastor teachers have been given to the church in order that God's people might be complete and capable of doing the work of reflecting Christ both in the church and then to the lost and dying world. And then second, he says, for the edification of the body of Christ, to build the body of Christ, both by adding to its numbers, that would be the evangelist, and then by adding to the strength of those who are already there, that would be the pastor teacher, in order that they stay strong upon this earth until the day when the battle is over and we are in heaven. And so we see this idea. Looking at verse 14, he elaborates upon it. He says... That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro. Let me give you one more there. Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So verse 13 said that these things are given until we all come into the unity of the faith. So we are to, to win people to Christ and to disciple them. And it's in order that we would all come into the unity of the faith unto the knowledge of the Son of God. Notice there the, the uh, direction of the unity. The unity of the faith in the knowledge of the Son of God, in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, unto a perfect man, not meaning sinless, but finished, complete, having all that is necessary to its nature and kind. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we not be tossed to and fro. The evangelist and the pastor teacher perfect the church to stabilize the church and to ground the church, lest, being untaught and unguarded, they be tossed to and fro, they be carried away with every wind of doctrine, and this is essential. Because the entire premise, even of 1 John, warns us of this, right? As we see 1 John compelling us unto this way of living, by which we align ourselves with Christ, we walk in the Spirit, we see the manifestations of walking in the Spirit, and as we manifest these walking, this, this walking in the Spirit, John warns about false teachers. False teachers abound. And in our age of what we might call the democratization of information through the Internet, not only do false teachers abound, but false teachers have we might say, an unprecedented capacity 
to spread their false teaching with relative ease in this time. And God has ordained that the evangelist and the pastor teacher in the church setting stands between God's people and these false teachers. And verse 15 tells us how. Verse 15 says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him, uh, grow up into him, excuse me, in all things, which is the head, even Christ. So the method by which we grow into Christ, we grow into the will of our head, the method within which we come into the unity, the fullness of the stature of Christ unto this perfect man is the truth in love. This is the method, not just for me as an ordained pastor teacher, but for one another as well. Because truth is the axle upon which the wheel of the church turns. If we don't have truth, we don't really have a church, folks. But also, if we don't express it in love, not in anger, not in judgment, not in pretension, not in pride, if we don't express it in love, then we're also not living up to the commission of the church. Because if we don't love one another, how can we say the love of the Father is in us? Because if we're not loving one another, then we're walking in darkness and not in light. And what is a church that walks in darkness? How are we the body of Christ if we are not as our head, if we are not obeying our head, if we are not functionally connected and unified with our head? We are dysfunctional. We are not functioning as the body of Christ if we are not speaking the truth in love. The truth in love is the embodiment of our head. It is the embodiment of who Christ is, of what he did, never wavering from the indelible realities of righteousness and justice, but reflecting those truths in a manner which was clothed in selflessness and determined compassion, even for the chief of sinners. And as we do this thing, we grow up unto Christ in all things, and we as a body are fitly joined together, as he says and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, so that each one of us becomes a joint in the body, and as each joint supplies its part, unified with its head, then we are compacted, we are joined together into a singular, functioning, strong, capable body. Because each one of us is strengthened in truth, Strengthened in selfless love by which we express that truth one to another so that every part of the body is working in harmony, health, and wellness. It is strengthened thus and it is increased. And God forbid that we should yield the power of this process of growth on the altar of anything really, but certainly not on the altar of some sort of synthetic peace or synthetic unity around anything other than Christ. And truth. You know, we live in a society that has been searching for the great magic bullet of health for some time. A people who want healthy bodies, but who are unwilling to do anything to have them, right? If I want to lose weight, simply put, I put fewer calories into my body than the number of calories that my body uses. If I want a healthy body, my body must get the nutrients necessary to function the way God designed it to function. 
I must also avoid the things that damage my body, not just as it relates to nutrition, but as it relates to activities and interests. My body must have nutrition. My body must have sleep, must have rest. My body must have these things if it's going to function properly. I am not going to have a very healthy body if I am punishing my body all the time, whether that's through lack of rest, whether that's through the manner in which I eat, whether that's through the activities that I do. So that if I'm pushing my body to its limits, my body is going to break down. My body has many desires, many urges, many interests, which might be natural to the body, but which are not best for the body. It might have many cravings, whether that's food or whether that's uh, even the, the activities that I might do that are maybe not best for the body, though they desire, though my body desires to do them. And if I want to be healthy, then when my body craves things which are not good for it, I must deny my body those things which it craves for its best good so that my body can functionally do what my head needs it to do. Yesterday we went skating uh, as a church and uh, we uh, cleared off the ice and began a good hockey game and, and I found myself playing some hockey but not nearly as much hockey as I might have done in years past. That's because while I was enjoying myself very much, I recognized the limitations of my body. And if I wanted my body to still be able to do the things that my head tells it to do, I needed to limit myself as it related to how hard I played hockey so that my body would not functionally break down and not be able to do the things that my head wants my body to do. We all have to make those decisions in life, right? It is often that the best path for my body is not necessarily the easiest path or the most enjoyable path or the path that, 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 that is most desirous. It is often in life that giving in to what I want can produce pain and sorrow and regret. And the same can be said about the body of Christ. There are many times where the path of least resistance in the body of Christ is to avoid truth in the body, to avoid confrontation, to avoid debate, to avoid pain. It is not a fun thing to have to confront a member of the body when there is something wrong with said member. It is not a fun thing to see that there's a part of the body that is hurting and that needs to be fixed, that is dysfunctional and needs to be brought back into unity. This is never an enjoyable thing. But what is the cost to the body when those things which are unhealthy are allowed to persist in the body. If I know my body has a problem and I do not seek to correct that problem, the whole body suffers. And we become an unhealthy church filled with carnality, persisting in those things which are shameful to the body, which are hurting the body, which are breaking down the body, creating a body which will be fundamentally ineffective as each member is unable to do what it needs to do to serve the head. And those members who are healthy then heave under the weight of compensating for those members who are not healthy. If my knee is, is hurting and I don't take care to brace it to get a, a, a cane or something, then my hips and my feet and my back are going to feel the strain of having to compensate for that hurt knee. 
So we get that knee healed up. Or else, if we don't get that knee healed up, we're going to have back pain. We're going to have uh, foot pain. We're going to have pain all over the rest of the body as it seeks to compensate and maybe is damaged itself from attempting to compensate for the needs of a bad knee. And then the body becomes ineffective. And then those healthy parts become unhealthy parts as well until they fail or, in the case of church, they depart. So that as we contemplate this command to love one another, what does it mean to love one another? What does it look like to love one another? How do we love one another? This love defined by selfless determination to do what is best for others. What is best for others is not what I like the most, nor what is most convenient, nor oftentimes what is the easiest, but what is actually best for them. Love, yes, but the truth in love. And that's the call. The truth in love. I'm not loving you if I'm not telling you the truth. You're not loving me if you're not telling me the truth. If there's wounded parts of the body, if there's damaged parts of the body, if there's weak parts of the body, we are not loving one another to just ignore that. Yep, bodies heal. And maybe, just maybe, someone is struggling for a time and that part of the body will heal itself. But if it's not healing, if the wound is open, if it's getting infected, if things aren't getting better, if it's starting to affect other parts of the body, look, we got to do something. Got to fix this. Got to make the body healthy. And remember, healthy is not unity for unity's sake. Healthy is not synthetic peace and tranquility just because we've given in to everybody's problems. Healthy is when we are all working together unto the image of Jesus Christ. Growing up in Him. Now, let's read Paul's concluding exhortation in the remainder of this chapter. Verses 17 to 32. It'll be a bit of a larger chunk of reading here. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Excuse me. Who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and ye be re- and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another." This is speaking of the church here. You see that, right? Stop lying one to another and speak truth instead. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. We can take that back to Romans chapter 12 and the idea of bless them that 
curse you, bless and curse not. All that's in the context of the church. Uh, if, if an enemy hunger, feed him. All of that's within the context of the church. You're not always going to get along, but let not the sun go down on your wrath. Verse 27, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him him that needeth. Last week we talked about giving as a manifestation of love in the church. If you are uh, not able to give because you're, you're, you are not being, uh, if you're not able to meet the needs of God's people because you are being selfish or lazy, then change that, right? So that you can give to those that have a need. Verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying that it may minister grace unto the hearers. So don't tear people down. Build people up. Corrupt communication tears down. Proper communication builds up. Verse 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed until the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And this Christian is the truth in love. This is what the truth in love looks like and sounds like. We live it. We exhort unto it, calling one another to put off the old man and to put on the new man. And when we call one another to do it, we make sure we've done it first. We help everyone get to this place where we are living in this manner, where we are setting aside the old man with its affections and lusts. We are setting aside those things that, are, that, that, that define the old man, that define the carnal man, and we are instead working together unto this end, working together unto these things, being renewed in the spirit of our minds together. We put away lying, we speak truth. We exhort one another unto the truth. We seek unto the truth. We seek unto this state, be angry and sin not, not letting the sun go down on your wrath, unto peace and love. We don't steal, rather we work. We don't tear down, we build up. And we forgive in kindness and in love. All unto this purpose, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If we are all seeking this For ourselves and for one another, we're all seeking unto Christ. There will be unity. There will be peace. As we seek it together, as we love one another. Unity in truth, unity through truth. Because there's no other kind of unity that matters in the church. Everything else is smoke and mirrors, Christian. So, how do we love the brethren? We tell one another the truth. And this isn't always easy because we live in a culture where the truth can be very offensive. And I don't just mean that culture is offended by the truth. What I mean is we live in a culture where we have been conditioned to think that if someone disagrees with us, they are attacking us. We have been conditioned to think that if someone confronts us, they are attacking us. We take every confrontation every criticism as a personal attack upon us. So that if I come to you and I tell you the truth and I say, hey, brother, 
I'm concerned about you. I've seen some manifestations in you which do not seem to be healthy. You have two ways that you can interpret that conversation. The first way you can interpret that conversation is how dare this person come up to me and tell me that there's something wrong with me. He is attacking me. He is embarrassing me. He is making me feel bad about myself. And thus he is my enemy. Or I can look and I can say, wow, this person loves me enough to come and to do something which is very uncomfortable for him. To come up and to tell me that there's something that could be corrected in me. What love this person must have for me. And you know what? Even if that person is wrong, because sometimes people might come up to you and they might say, hey, I'm concerned about you. You're doing this thing. And you may be a little confused and you inquire Dig a little bit more, okay, what, what, what about that are you concerned with? And you dig and you dig and you dig and you come to that place. And as we get to the bottom of it, you realize, okay, this person is in a place where they, they feel this way, but I'm not concerned. I'm not concerned about the thing I'm doing or I'm not concerned about this manifestation or whatever it might be. Even in those situations where you're quite confident that another's attempt to love you through telling you the truth is either misguided or incorrect or lacking the necessary context for them to actually be able to understand the situation you're in, can you still filter that and see how that person, though perhaps in ignorance, is actually seeking to love you by telling you the truth? And again, there are people that go a little bit out of balance with this, right? And there may have to be a loving conversation telling them that they're that they're out of balance there. But can you have the courage, fellow church member, to receive such things in the spirit that they're being given? So that we, we don't find ourselves in this catch-22, this chicken and egg problem, where if somebody comes up and tells me the truth, I, get, I feel personally attacked and I, I now don't like them which makes people no longer want to tell the truth because it's just going to be misinterpreted as attack. And so now the people that do have the courage to come up and tell you the truth are now dissuaded from doing so, so that now later when perhaps you need the truth, they will not tell you the truth because they're afraid of just being attacked. And we get ourselves into this cycle where no one's willing to tell anyone the truth anymore. Because either I'm going to feel personally attacked by, by hearing the truth or I'm going to be personally attacked by telling the truth. And at some point, you throw up your arms and say, you know, it's just not worth it anymore. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. And at the point that we are all keeping our mouths shut and no longer speaking the truth in love, once again, we don't have much of a church anymore. Because at some point, someone's going to need the truth and it's not going to be there. And then the whole process is going to start. That part of the body is wounded. And then that, party will have to be that part of the body will have to be compensated for by the other parts. And then those parts are going to be wounded by having to bear these burdens of these that are, are needing to be compensated for. And then the whole body breaks down. Because we're not telling the truth. We're not receiving the truth in love. So can you have the courage to hear? Can you have the courage, fellow church member, to tell the truth to those who need it? To help those in their areas of weakness. Then there's a couple reasons why you might not want to do this. First off, it's not pleasant, right? You don't know how they're going to react. Are they going to feel like I'm attacking them? Is this going to change our relationship? It, that's one of the reasons. But at least, you know, for me, of course, I, I'm, I'm kind of the pastor here, so I have to do this a little bit more often in the body than many others. But 
You know, my biggest thing is when I, when I think through telling someone the truth, the thing that runs through my mind is how much investment is it going to take to help them? Do I really want to add that to my plate? See, because if you go up to someone and you tell them the truth, it might just be that they're going to need help to fix their problem. And you might just be the person that will need to help them do it, which means you might have to have some conversations on the phone for a couple of hours in the evening, which means you might have to make a couple of extra trips to someone's house to sit down with them and, and, and to, to, to help them open a Bible and to help them through a few things, which means you might have to be thoughtful enough to hold someone accountable a little bit and call them up on a day and say, hey, just want to know how are you doing today? And that takes emotional effort, physical effort, and that's not always exactly a fun thing to do. But do you have the love for this group of people that you're willing to do it? Can we all do this in love? Not embarrassing people, not attacking people, not shaming people, not tearing people down. These are not the goals. This is not the intent. This is not the way to go. And then, and, and, and we've seen this before, right? You've seen this in churches. You've seen this in evangelism where some guy gets really nasty with someone and then walks away and says, I was just telling them the truth. No, you were just being nasty. Yeah, it was the truth, but there was no love in that. There was no love in that. Let's not do that, Christian. Let's not tear people down and just say, well, the truth hurts. It's not how we play that game. Rather, lovingly, compassionately, tell the truth into the ears of the hearers. And we're talking about the body here, right? Paul made that clear in this chapter. This is the body. We're not necessarily talking about what we're saying to the people outside these walls. It's what we're saying to one another. It's what we're doing to and for one another. Unto two ends. Unity and edification. We unify under this truth and then we build each other up in the truth. So that all of us are stronger when we leave here than when we came. All of us are stronger at the end of the year than at the beginning of the year. And we're all stronger because we have all been working together to make each other stronger. Yes, we can unify around the rubble of a church that's been torn down by petty bickerings and personal vendettas. But there's nothing really left there. Or we can unify around the truth of a church while rallying around one another unto the determination of selflessly investing in one another that we all might get better. And it is in this place that we are loving one another as Christ has loved us. Christ was indeed a truth teller in his day. But though he proclaimed, as it were, the yoke of this truth with clarity, he still would tell them that his yoke was easy and his burden was light. And may ours be as well. May we be devoted to the clarity and the purity and the holiness of the truths of our head who is Jesus Christ. For the moment that the body yields the character of Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, the body has now left the head behind. The body is now in dysfunction. And the body is effectively useless. 
But as we seek to conform the body to the truth that is our head, if we do so by punishing the body, if we do so by injuring the body, if I say, well, it's the best thing for you to be injured, so I break my kneecap, I'm not doing the body any good. I don't like the way my knee is acting, so I punish it. I'm not doing it any good. It's kind of wounded, so I'm just going to wound it more. I'm not doing it any good. By maiming, by disfiguring, by amputating, by malnourishing the body, I'm not doing the body any good. You might have brought some measure of unity in the body. All the body's hurt now. All the body's sad now. All the body's malnourished now. But the body is not better for it, even if it's unified in it. Instead, let us live the truth in love, maintaining a fervent allegiance to the truth that is Christ, but living and exhorting in determined and selfless love. What we talked about in Romans 12, what we talked about last week in James 2, the principle of need. And hopefully at this point you'll be ready for it, the principle of the weaker brethren, which is the one that is absolutely the hardest to swallow. So we live determined unto this selfless love in order that the body might grow into Christ stronger every day and so more effective for our head. So how are you doing today, Christian? Is Ephesians 4 what our interactions in the body look like? Are you loving the brethren as you've been commanded? Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.